Welcome to the Rock Podcast. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Holy Spirit directs the Apostle Paul to list 15 qualifications for a man who would become a pastor. The church at Ephesus needed to replace the false teachers with true men of God who were biblically qualified to lead. Let's join Pastor Ross now as we talk about the character qualities for Christian leaders. Alrighty, good morning. We're going to get started. Welcome you to take a seat and grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we pick up line by line, chapter by chapter through the New Testament. And this moment in time, we find ourselves in the pastoral epistles, the letters that are written to instruct us on how the church ought to be managed. And so, a uh, beautiful uh, portion of scripture to reflect upon this morning. And so before we do that, we'll ask the Lord's blessing. Amen. Amen. Now, Heavenly Father, we do come before you. We want to recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't understand these words and are spiritually discerned. We need the help of the Spirit. So, Father God, you, you brought us here on purpose with the intention of ordering our footsteps to be at this place at this time. Uh, You've destined us to be here, whoever we are, for the good purpose of being comforted, encouraged, instructed in your word that brings life and blessing. So, Father, help us to open our hearts and to hear what your spirit is saying to each one of us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, graduations are happening all over the place. How many of you have been to one recently? A lot of hands going up. I just got passed up on the way to church by a car that was covered with congrats, class of 2014. And so it's that glorious time of year, you know, and toss the caps high in the air. Came across an article that was talking specifically about college graduation and in particular the current job market that's out there and what graduates should keep in mind when they go about on their interviews. It was very interesting to read that no matter what field you're in or what you studied, there are some qualifications that almost all employers are demanding. Now, each year, the National Association of Colleges and Employers surveys employers across the country and asks them to rate the top qualities and skills that they seek in the new college hire. So here are the top five. One, communication skills. Listening, speaking, and writing, because not much productivity can happen if there's a breakdown in communication. Uh, Number two, teamwork. In most jobs, it's a group group effort, so employers want someone who can uh, bring out the best in others and pull their own weight. Number three, analytical and problem-solving skills. Employers want people who can figure out what's not working and be part of the answer and not part of the problem. Amen? Amen. 
I felt that building up. You needed to release that. <laughs> All right, awesome. Number four, personal management skills. In other words, you're a together person. You've got it together personally. In other words, you don't need hand-holding. You can manage your emotions, your life, your schedule, your behavior, your responsibilities, and the stresses that come with that job in an appropriate professional manner. And number five, interpersonal effectiveness. That's a fancy way of saying that you can get along well with others, and more importantly, others can get along with you. (laughs) Nothing is more off-putting to an employer than the thought of bringing on a person who's going to be a pain to have around no matter how good they are at the technical part of their job. And all God's people said, I know, a lot of you are employers, apparently. (laughs) Now, the article went on to say, the good news for grads, no matter what you've studied in school, whether anthropology or French, computer or computer science, you will have had to learn the top five skills on this list. You will need to demonstrate that you have these five skills somewhere during the interview process. And in most cases, it's more important than the particular technical ability that you have because you may be the best in the field technically, but if you're lacking the qualities above, it's pretty much a deal breaker. Amen? Well, This is where we're headed. The qualifications for ministry leaders is up next. And uh, we see that that's exactly what's going on with those qualifications. It's an invaluable chapter that outlines the minimal qualifications for would-be pastors and Christian leaders. You may have graduated from seminary, passed courses, lots of certificates to hang in your office. You may be very knowledgeable about the Bible and a pretty good speaker, but without the character qualities listed here in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's biblically a deal breaker. So we're going to take a look at that. Now, the context, if you just joined us, the great church at Ephesus, so significant and so impactful, to the Roman Empire for the cause of Christ has been commandeered, taken over by false teachers for several years. Uh, These teachers, and I quote, as Paul described them, have wandered from the truth and have been robbed of that truth, two phrases to describe them. They were out of their minds, full of themselves, more interested in money than in the ministry, as we'll find out later in the book of 1 Timothy. They were filled with pride and conceit, and uh, they were poisoning the minds of the congregation with their false teaching. The Bible says they were making stuff up. It called it fables and myths. And then making Christianity, which is a living, thriving relationship with the living God through faith, turning it into a a list of do's and don'ts and that you're saved by keeping all these rules and regulations. Well, it's been said that the pulpit is the rudder of the ship. And at Ephesus, that rudder was turned toward the rocky shore. And that church was in trouble. So Paul got released from prison. 
the first thing he did, just about, was to take Timothy and Titus and go doing some work, and they ended up at Ephesus. They found out what was happening. Paul the Apostle excommunicated those false teachers. Well, two for sure. Six are named in the scriptures. And so he went on, but he left Timothy in charge now. Now what? There are vacancies. They need guys to get up and preach the gospel soundly and to rightly divide the word of truth, right? So, inspired by the Spirit, what does Paul do? He sends a letter, 1 Timothy, to Timothy to say about those vacancies. Here's what to look for. Here's the screening process. I'm going to give you 15 qualities that should check out in the life of anybody who seeks to be a leader in the church. And so that's the context. Now, what's cool about the list, and we're going to take a look at that list this morning. That's going to be the topic of our time together. The cool thing for all of us is it reveals what God considers uh, spiritual maturity, which is the goal of every Christian. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're, uh, you're going to be in ministry as your vocation or not for this chapter. Uh, the character qualities in this chapter uh, that belong or should belong to Christian pastors also must be possessed by anybody who names the name of Christ over their life. It's just that a pastor must exemplify them and, and must be, uh, you know, a good model of them as he stands before the congregation. And, and though the Christian who follows Christ must be imitating those qualities. What did Paul say to the Philippians? He said, anything you've seen or heard, received from me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul was saying, hey, listen, I'm modeling for you. And whatever you see in my character, you have to imitate so that you can have a peace-filled life with the Lord. He also told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. You see, so don't check out and just think this is the list for would-be pastors. It is. But it is also the call of every Christian to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is your God-appointed destiny. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And then don't leave off the next verse. The next verse is to conform you to the image of his Son. So God is causing all things in your life to work together for good. And what is that good? To make you more like Jesus. We forget that verse 29. It's so important. So I don't mind, in short, before we dive in now, I don't mind you taking a clipboard out because, (laughs) you know, these are the qualifications for a pastor. I don't mind you having a clipboard and checking us out the four pastors that are here. I don't mind that if you also reflect on your own life along with us. So you'll have two columns on your checkboard. All right. You'll have one for the leadership that you know about and one for your own life. Amen? 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 Amen. Yeah. There's a little bit more uh, enthusiasm. (laughs) 
All right, let's go. Hey, one more thing I have written down here. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. All right? You know what that means. People say it all the time. They don't know what it means. A gander is another goose. What's good for the goose is good for the goose. All right? That's what it's saying. If, if, if something is good for a Christian leader, it's good for all Christians. Amen? Amen. Verse 1. Now, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how in the world, I threw in the in the world part, uh, can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, that is, unbelievers, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. All right, so let's pause there. And, and, you know, there's a lot to talk about here. And so I don't mind just using this to reflect uh, for this morning's Bible study. And I would say if you're taking notes, number one would be qualifications for overseers. Now, let's talk first about these terms used for the pastor and pastors of the church. Now, here in verses 1 through 7, he's addressing a a position called the overseer. King James Version has bishop, because back in those days in England, 500 years ago, that's what a pastor was called. He was called a bishop, so you have the bishop, and that term is retained in some denominations today, mostly Catholic and Episcopal. Uh, Retain it, but others do as well. Now, let me show you. Overseer, elder, and pastor are three terms that are used interchangeably in the Greek, in the text. And so an overseer is a pastor, pastor is an elder, an elder is an overseer, and and you get it, all right? So let me talk about it. Overseer, the word used in our text, in our context, is from a word episkopos, where, of course, you get the name episcopal, uh, to watch over and to care all right? It just, frank, quite frankly, means to oversee. Uh, the second word that's used a lot for church leader is elder. Presbuteros in the Greek, where we get the word presbyter or presbyterian. All right? Uh, it technically just means an old man. All right? Or an older man. <laughs> it denotes spiritual maturity. All right? And then finally, pastor, poimen in the Greek. Uh, It it means to shepherd or to feed. Uh, In fact, the verb to shepherd is the verb to feed. All right? It actually means to eat, to be the feeder, and to feed the word of God. Now, so to sum up the pastor's position then, really, the three terms are very helpful because you get a nice summary. Uh, The pastor has authority to oversee, 
trusted, tested experience, and he's there to care and protect the congregation. And so it's nice to have the three words. But uh, let me show an example of how they're used uh, synonymously. All right, First Peter uh, chapter 5 has it. Okay, to the elders, presbyteros, among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, presbyteros, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be pastors, be shepherds, be poimen of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, episkopos, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. So in fact, right here in the seven verses, he's talking to overseers, right? In chapter five, verse 17, he's going to call the same guys elders. So we got it. Now, in English, one word surfaced to the the point where we use one word to cover all of these other words, and that word in English is pastor. Pastor's an elder, an elder's a pastor, and so on. And so for our purposes, I'm just going to go with pastor because uh, it means the same thing, and it's the word that we use uh, most. Now, Uh, the biblical duties. I just went through the New Testament and I plugged in elder, overseer, and pastor. And every single thing that came up as far as their duty, what did they do? I just made a quick list, all right? So if you're a note taker, you want to be ready. Here's just a quick list of what those, what a pastor does, all right? Number one, exercises God-given authority to serve God's people. 1 Peter 5.2. They direct the affairs of the church. Hebrews 13.17. They set church policy. 1 Timothy 5 has two good examples. Verse 9 and 19. Uh, They handle church finances. Acts 11. Verse 30. Acts 4.37. They give themselves over to pray, preach, and teach the word of God. 1 Timothy 5.17. They equip God's people by teaching them to serve God, Ephesians 4.11. They reprove, rebuke, and exhort, 2 Timothy 4.2. They guard against false doctrine and false teachers, 1 Timothy 4.16. They do the work of an evangelist, that is, they have uh, a ministry to the lost, to connect them. It's not just to Christians. They have an evangelistic ministry. Uh, flavor to them, 2 Timothy 4, 5. Three more. They have a part in world mission. So missions is a part of it, Acts 13, uh, verse 2. They lay hands and ordain other leaders, 1 Timothy 4, 14. And they train up and disciple other men into leadership positions, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. So they're busy. <laughs> that should be enough to keep them busy. So this is their work, and now to the verses before us. Uh, This is their work, and now Paul calls it a noble work. The NIV has task there, but the word is a strong word for labor, toil, and work. And work it is, but it's called noble because of the nobility and the honor of the one whose work we're doing. Amen? The Lord is the true pastor. In fact, he's called the great pastor or the great shepherd of 
the sheep or of the church. The Lord is the head of the body. It's his church and the churches always belong to God. And he is, quote, as 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 25 calls him the overseer of our souls. Very beautiful. The overseer of our souls. And so, yeah, it's a noble work, but it's also a sober work as well. Christian leaders uh, will be judged more strict than others. James chapter 3, verse 1. He said, you might want to think about going into the ministry because you will, uh, you will have, you will look forward to a stricter judgment and evaluation from God because of your honored position. So I will be held to a stricter accountability than others. And so will all leaders in the church. And so that's a sobering thing. Now to the text, he, he says, if a man has set his heart uh, to become a, a Christian leader, let's say a pastor, he desires a noble work. Now don't under, misunderstand this. Paul isn't affirming a man's arbitrary, random uh, uh, desire to go into ministry. Rather, he's emphasizing the noble work to which he feels called. Now listen, eldership, just another word for the pastor, pastoral team, or pastor, uh, isn't a personal ambition. You, you don't say, hey, one day you wake up and just say, hey, I could do this, I could do that, I could go into this field, or I could be a pastor. Well, maybe I'll be a pastor. No. That's what it may sound like. But that's not what we get biblically. What we get biblically is first it's a calling, and the ambition, setting your heart on it as an ambition, is a response to want to, a desire to fulfill the calling that God has upon your life. When I walked out of that bar, when I was 19 years old, I had like this vision that just sent my head spinning and my life was changed forever. I had never been to church. I had never opened a Bible. But I was born again on that sidewalk. Two days later, I gathered my godless party animal roommates, (laughs) sat them down, I saw a Bible on the shelf in the hallway. It was a hardcover King James Gideon's Bible. I just saw it. I grabbed it. I said, sit down. I need to talk to you. I had never been to church. don't even know a Christian. I don't know anything except my eyes are open and I get the general gospel. All right? I sit them down. There's a heaven. There's a hell. You need Jesus. Oh, yeah, bro, we got Jesus, man. We know Jesus, you know? I was like, no, you don't. I, uh, you, you need God. I opened the book. It fell to 1 Corinthians. I remember to this day looking down and seeing Corinthians and thinking, what is that? What is that? I don't know, but I had to have a book. I had to have it open. Why? Because there was a calling on my life 42 hours after 48 hours? Well, maybe it was 42. I don't know. It's not something you just say, yeah, I was going to set my heart on this, you know? You set your heart on it because there's no other option. It's a compulsion. You know, I told you this story about being at the, I got a job right away working at a pizza place, right? And there's a perfectly good microphone hanging there. And they weren't using it for the glory of God. (laughs) So I grabbed it one day. And as I'm drawn to it, I've got a calling. All right? And I see the microphone and say, oh, microphone. 
people's ears, lost people. Right? So I said, whispered in it, Jesus loves you. Oh, I was so fired. And one of the wisecrack things that she said was, you know, you could probably find a job where they pay you to take the microphone and talk all day about Jesus, but not at the pizza place. I shouldn't have done that, by the way. But you know what? You don't choose the ministry. The ministry chooses you, right? So here's David Guzik, and we'll move on to the, about this desire for this noble work. The idea, he says, isn't good for you. You want to have a place of spiritual leadership, even though that can be a godly desire. The idea here is more like this. Timothy, this is a good and noble, honorable work. You need to look for good, noble, honorable men. And here's 15 qualities that you ought to be able to find in the new set of teachers that take to that pulpit. And so that's what the context of this is. And now, he says, first of all, and first on the list, it's so important. And remember, it's not just important to a leader. It's important to any Christian to, number one, live above reproach. Now, along the way, we're going to take these 15. Some and spend a little time on others I can just mention. All right? But they're great. They're awesome. Because this is who we are. This is our destiny. So to live above reproach is this. One Greek word, which means nothing to take hold of. In other words, it means no criminal charges can stick against you. That you live in such a way that there is no basis for even the accusation of wrongdoing. That's what it means. It means that you're unconvictable because you strive to live a blameless life. Nobody is sinless. Nobody. But we can all strive to be blameless. You really can. And, uh, you know, Daniel is a great example of living above reproach. Chapter 6 of Daniel. You don't need to turn there. His, his uh, co-workers were jealous. He was getting promoted over them. They said, we've got to take this guy down. Hire some private eyes. Investigate. Let's find a way to trip him up and disqualify him from the promotion. So here's what, they, here's what happened. Verse 4. At this, the administrators tried to find grounds to, for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these guys say, we'll never find any basis for charging him with anything unless it has something to do with his walk with God. That ought to be said of you and and of me. Listen, go ahead and hire your private eye. Follow me around for a couple months. Check out my finances Call the IRS, you know, do a history on my computer. You know, at Heald College where I worked, we came in after a break and rumors went flying. They, while during the break, they, they cleaned all the computers and they did histories and checks and they, they, the people were getting fired. 
And I heard this from a guy who had sweat on his brow talking to me about it, right? And you know what? I was like, whatever. That's such a good feeling to live above reproach. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It just means in every way you're striving, whether in the, in the actual deed of your life or the appearance. That's why Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He says, avoid the very appearance of evil. So technically, you didn't do anything. You stayed over at your girl's house and you fell asleep uh, and you left at one o'clock in the morning and nothing happened. But what did, what, uh, what did it look like? What did it look like? That's why, see, you can't, you're not above being charged with that. <laughs> you talk to me about Jesus that he leaves his girlfriend's house at 2 a.m. Ah, you're not above reproach, sorry. And the attitude that says... What? You think I'm going to change my lifestyle because I technically didn't do anything. I know my own heart. Who cares what that guy thinks? That's a bad attitude. <laughs> That's an immature one. All right, well, I could go on for days, but I, I think there are 14 left. <laughs> All right, number two. The husband of one wife. That's an easy one, right? You would think, Right? Listen, there was a lot of polygamy going on in the Roman Empire and in Jewish circles. So guys had more than one wife. That's not very smart. I don't think it's very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) You know how many shoes that is? That's a lot of shoes, people. (laughs) I don't make that kind of money. All right, now. Timothy. If the guy's going to be a teacher, he's got to have one wife. He cannot be a polygamist, right? More than that is this. David Guzik, love him. Here's his comment. This admonition implies that the biblical leader, like all Christian men, is not a womanizer, an adulterer, or a flirt, and does not show romantic interest in other women, including depictions of women in pornography. In other words, this is a command about moral purity, self-control, and fidelity. That's what it is. And by the way, if God wanted to prevent divorced men from being pastors, I think it would be more clear. It is not clear by taking this verse. There is a way to say Having never been divorced or only married once, it does not say that. It says that he currently has one wife. That's what we're talking about. But, you know, that's my personal opinion, and denominations make their decisions. At Calvary Chapel, we take it as it just is, is that the guy is not a polygamist, and he's just a faithful husband. That's what it means. He's a faithful, loyal, true-to-heart guy. All right, number three. Temperate, love this one. It means even keeled. Balance, you know. You see that? They love that first service. What's wrong with you guys? Okay, it means to keep your head in all situations. That's one of my favorite slides to describe the way I feel on any given day. <laughs> Pastoring. Uh, uh, here's what 2 Timothy 4 5 says of the same. Root word of this word, 
Keep your head in every situation. That's what this word means. Because if you're going to be a pastor of a church, you're going to need not to be reactive. You're going to need to be a steady eddy, all right? Because things happen. There are difficult personalities, not in this church, but in other churches. There are, and now we get serious, terminal illnesses, surprise. I'll get a text or a phone call that'll knock the wind out of me. Babies in ICU, fatal accidents, and marriages in crisis, and people cheating, people falling into sin, getting into trouble, funds that come and ebb and flow, growing pains with building problems, complaints, offenses, and squabbles. He says, let Nothing move you. Eyes on Jesus. Nose in the book. Knees on the ground. Hands doing the work of God. And keep a steady cadence. Amen? Amen. Nothing's more uh, attractive to the outside world than somebody who can have a lot of problems going on and just has an ordered peace about it. It's very unbecoming to freak out as a Christian. I know there's a probably more graceful way to say that. All right. Self-controlled. Now, you're just a tough crowd. That's all there is to it. (laughs) Who wants to be around that guy? All right, self-controlled is a fruit of the Spirit. And like all of these, let me say this right from the jump before we get any further. If you start setting yourself to say, yeah, I need more of that, and I've got to be more of that. Oh, I don't do good with that. I'll go try harder with there. That's wrong. You'll never get it. All of this is from getting close to God and being filled with the Holy Spirit. These are fruit of the Spirit. And as you grow in Christ and intimacy with him, these disciplines start, yeah, you cooperate with him, but you can't just say, hey, I need to be more self-controlled and I'm going to work on this and here's the way I'm going to achieve it. You know what? That's a human way of thinking. The goal is not self-control. Zen Buddhists are self-controlled. The goal is Jesus and loving him and letting him flow into our lives and, and be self-controlled through us as we die on the cross when we don't want to be self-controlled. Amen? It means sober-minded, not reactive, thoughtful, measured, intentional, in charge of your emotions, in charge of your thoughts. I love this one writer said, the greatest fruit of the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift of all, is the ability to master the tyranny of self. Amen? Amen? Now, respectable. I just have a definition for you. Very interesting. Remember last week <laughs> in the sermon about women and their role in ministry? <clears throat> and I might tell you that this sermon is a lot easier than last week's. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Rabbit trail alert. Um, I was coming in first service last week where the, the text was very challenging about the role of women. It was very strong language. And a guy ran up to me and he said, Pastor Ross, 
I read this morning's chapter at home, and I just read it, and I said, dear God, help Pastor Ross. (laughs) And I said, oh, thank you. I'm so encouraged. (laughs) All right. Back to respectable. What I was saying is that the word for how women should dress modestly is this word, respectable. Now, what it means for a pastor or a Christian leader is is that there's nothing inappropriate or untoward about them. There's nothing inappropriate or unbecoming about how they talk, about how they dress, about how they live. It's just, you're just not, there's nothing there. It's decent, uh, as it says, correct appearance and appropriate. Hospitable. The Greek word means to love strangers, and all Christians are called to be hospitable, but the pastor as well, because a a good pastor will make a stranger feel like a friend, and uh, that's what's really important. How in the world do we represent a warm and welcoming God and not be warm and welcoming in our life? Amen? So... Uh, In the early days, Christians avoided inns and hotels because they had bad reputations. They were not safe and they were not moral places. And so Christians traveling would live with other, would stay rather with other Christians. And so there was a real need, especially for evangelists and pastors and Christian workers. They needed to stay at safe places. And so there was a call to be hospitable Uh, Able to teach is the next one, number seven. Now, um, I would say that all pastors, if you are a called pastor, you do have the teaching gift, which we see in Romans chapter 12 and verse seven. Um, But I find it very interesting that the gift for the pulpit comes listed here after many character qualities to show that though the pastor may be an able teacher of God's word, what he is as a person is of equal importance with what he does as a pastor, right? This is true for every Christian. You know, if your life doesn't match uh, what your lips are saying, you invalidate everything that's coming out of your mouth by the way you're living, right? I mean, it's a joke. I, I remember, I, I've told you this one before. I was in a teacher's lounge, and one of the guys was obviously a Christian there. I did not know him. He was on the phone, and he was talking, and he was talking. Uh, oh, he's reading his Bible, and he got up to answer the phone. And he, he got up to answer the phone, and it was horrendous, horrendous, rude, and vulgar words coming out of his mouth. And he came back down, and sat down, and opened the Bible back up. I mean, I exercised self-control there. I want you to know. I didn't say anything. You know, it wasn't my place. I was busy anyway. The bell rang, and I didn't have the opportunity to talk to him. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's why he's on number seven. He says, oh, by the way, he's got to teach, too. He's got to be able to teach. But he better have these six things going on, living above reproach. And to cuss somebody out on the phone 
when you have an open Bible on the table, it's just not very smart. Amen? All right, good. We're on the same page. Not given to much wine, the King James says. He's not a drinker, all right? Now, it's kind of a no-brainer that the guy shouldn't be drunk in the pulpit. Um, Can you imagine? That's not the place, if ever you're going to have drunk too much, to be in the pulpit. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Pew! Why do I do stuff like that? I do it, then I go home and I, I complain to Barb about an hour of, what did I do that for? She's like, what, do you want me to stop you? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see it coming, you know? All right, so, yeah, it means not addict. Listen, uh, it's not a command to abstain from wine. It is a rather that your life must not be characterized by drinking and drinking to excess. I like what King Lemuel's mama said in Proverbs 31. It says King Lemuel's mama said, look it up for yourself, you don't blame me. (laughs) It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Well, Lemuel's mama, she's smart. That's why she's in Proverbs 31. All right, okay. If you are constantly drinking, you are never exercising the sober judgment needed for uh, serious uh, situations. Amen? Amen? Now, a fitting word to follow, not being a drinker, is not to be violent. <laughs> This is, this is Pastor Tom. Some of you have come from his congregation. No, I'm just kidding. Tom. Tom is his name, right? Joking around. Okay, I'm going to stick to my notes. Uh, all right. In the, in the Greek, it literally says he's not the pastor, Christian leader, is not to be a striker. It means a striker, somebody who's always throwing punches. That's not what we're called to. Now, uh, it's the kind of guy who one wrong word, one wrong look, what'd you look at me like that for? Right? Well, like what? Look at that. Right? Those kinds of people should take a little bit more time before they think about serving the Lord in that capacity. And no Christian should be like that. Edgy, hostile, wound tight, Chip on the shoulder, you know, that's not good. Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse saying this to his seminary students, don't go about the world with your fist clenched for a fight or carry a theological revolver in the leg of your trousers. (laughs) Now, you know what? Uh, Yeah, all right, let's move on. Gentle. Gentle. Now, this word means sweet reasonableness. Jesus used it to describe his overall nature. One commentator put it this way, there's no one single word in English for this Greek word. You need about five words. And their five words were gracious, kind, considerate, merciful, and nice. 
Now, I personally think that, that all Christians should be nice. Amen? Amen. That's profound. But do, do you find it to be true, the case? Listen. Christians ought to be nice people. That we should be, that should be our disposition. And if anybody's standing up, talking about the loving God, their life better be sweet and kind. So Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Partner with me, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I'm gentle. He's saying, I'm not intimidating. You you don't have to be afraid you're going to say something, I'm going to be like, what was that? You know, he says, I'm I'm nice. I'm nice, I'm easygoing, I'm laid back and friendly, I like you. Fun to be around. I'm going to cut you a lot of slack. Gracious, kind, merciful. That's what we need to be. Now, one commentator said, Timothy is charged with confronting and silencing the menacing false teachers within the church. So this doesn't mean that ministers don't need to be courageous and firm and aggressive when it's called for. It just means that their overall disposition is sunny and mild. Amen? (laughs) Weatherman. (laughs) Not quarrelsome, number 11. (laughs) I like that one. All right. Now, literally, it means a non-combative person. It's not a nitpicker who wants to be contentious about every little thing. There are Christians and pastors who get so involved about their doctrinal stances, especially in areas that don't really, uh, aren't salvific. In other words, they're, they're, they're not essential to being saved. Like what you think about the end days. Is it going to be pre, mid, or post, right? I personally think it's pre, right? That the church is rescued and then the wrath comes, just like the Bible teaches. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I can't help it, all right? I'm working on self-control. I'm not, I'm not all the way there. All right, however, you know, to just spend hours talking about whether or not you can lose your salvation because you, dis- you already have your goal and you just want to go around because you just love to hear yourself talking about it and engaging and playing the devil's advocate. We don't have time for that. Quarrelsome. Yeah, 2 Timothy 2.24. A servant of the Lord, that would be you, must not quarrel and me, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Right. Not contentious. Not afraid to sit down and talk, talk things out. Sometimes you have to debate a little bit. That's all right. But it's not not cool to be a contentious kind of person. All right, number 12. Not a lover of money. And the King James calls it filthy lucre. Let me explain what filthy lucre is. Lucre comes from a Latin word that sounds much like lucre, which we get the word lucrative from. Filthy just means dishonest gain. So being lucrative in a dishonest, 
honest, worldly way is the nickname for the love of money, not money itself, because money just sitting there, just paper. You know, it doesn't have morality in itself. Morality comes into play when we start to love it and do things that we ought not to do and to serve it. The Lord says you can only really serve one master. You can't serve God and money. And so if you go into the ministry because you want to make money, and, and I'm going <laughs> to... It's not that funny. It's sad. For entertainment, until my blood pressure rises too high, I go on those, those Christian stations. I just did it two days ago. Just in the night, I just needed to fall asleep, but no, it wasn't going to help me do that. I thought that I was watching satire. I I felt like it was a joke. This is a joke. This isn't real. This is a comedy. I got a comedy station. But it was the real thing. It's beyond belief that pastors, they're not truly pastors. It's a calling. My dad on the day, I said, Dad, I'm going to go to Bible college. I was doing the microphone things. I was crazy for Jesus and telling everybody. Somebody said, you're an evangelist. I said, what's an evangelist? What you are, what you're doing. You're an evangelist. I'm like, oh, wow, that's awesome. And I'm going to Bible college. I'm going to be a pastor. My dad said to me, can you make a living at it? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't care. I remember where I was standing when he asked me that question. I've got, I was born, Dad. I was born to do this. I have to do it. I'll pay them to do it. All right? And, and you know, some pastors do do that. They work, uh, most pastors have a second job. They're not in it for the money, the real ones, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, even though the Lord, and I'm quoting Paul, has commanded that those who preach the gospel should make their living by the gospel, he says, we don't do it to make a living. We do it to discharge a duty. And then we leave the living up to God. That's the way it should be. So if anybody's greedy for anything like that, uh, there's no place for that person to be in Christian ministry. A well-managed family is number 13. We're getting there. Now, it. He says he's got to manage his family well because if he can't manage things at home, uh, how, in world, how in the world could he manage the church of God? And so he, here's what one pastor wrote about that. It doesn't imply that the marriage is issue-free or that the kids are perfectly behaved. There's no such home. No matter how devoted the parents are, I should have said, Now, what is implied, however, is that the Christian leader is a good husband and a solid good father and that the home is characterized by love and grace and an orderly way of life that reflects biblical values. David Guzik said this, It's true that a child may rebel from even a good home, but is it the rebellion because of the parents or in spite of their job as parents? This is a question that must be asked. If the home is in utter chaos, the Lord is saying, man, take care of your family. Take care of your family. Everybody's got a little bit of ups and downs, right? 
uh, but the, the character of the home should be, should be a good example. This is a Christian home. Good, bad, and ugly. This is a Christ-fearing home. Amen? Almost there, 14. A pastor must not be a recent convert. Did you know that the word there, the one Greek word, uh, is actually neophytos, and it means, it's where we get neophyte, which means novice, but it quite literally means newly planted. Newly planted. The guy can't be fresh in his faith. And he gives a reason for that. Now, he could be young. You know, the Lord wrote to Timothy, who was young. He said, don't let anybody despise you because of your youth, but you be an example to them. You're not disqualified from the pastor because you're young in years. Young in conversion years is the problem. You all, most of you know Calvary Chapel Petaluma, Zach Vesnes. Zach Vesnes took that position in his early to mid-20s. And what's even... uh, playing into this more is that he looks even younger than he actually is. It's a large church with a big budget for a guy who's 24. He's not disqualified at all because he grew up in the church and been a Christian ever since he could remember in a ministry-minded home where they were in church every night of the week as long as the guy could remember. And it turned out to be a real big blessing over there. And look, He's been there 10 years, and God has blessed that church. And they've doubled in size, and the church has grown in spectacular ways. The young isn't the problem. It's young in the Lord. And why is that? And he gives the reason. Now, you would think, well, there's this reason. There's that reason. But look at the reason, he says, so that he doesn't get, in the Greek, puffed up with smoke or conceited and fall into the same trap as the devil. So let's talk about that. Why did he choose that as the reason? Well, because in a a new convert's life, when they have a gift of teaching and evangelism, and they're growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they need time to get anchored, to be humbled, and to see their own weakness and their own failures, and, and to, to be anchored in their own inability and helplessness. They don't have time for that when they're young, right, in the Lord. And so, just like the Apostle Paul said, he said, to keep me from becoming conceited, puffed up with smoke, because of the job I do, the ministry I have, the Lord has allowed a messenger from hell to torment me, a, a tent peg in my side he says three times I asked the Lord take it away from me and three times the Lord said hey my grace is sufficient because you need to be grounded here in your weakness I'll be strong and so uh, A.W. Tozer said before the Lord will use a man greatly he will often wound a man greatly This new convert needs time to get knocked around a little bit. To get, I mean, that's what humble means, is to lay low. He needs to be laid low. And now most of my pastor friends, they all, we all have stories 
of being trampled on and being thrown down and messengers from Satan to, to torment and to, to show us it's a heady thing to, to stand up before people and say, you know, I'm speaking as it were. First Peter 4.10 If any of you speak, let him speak the very words of God. That's a heady thing. So exhilarating to see the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the way he'll work through a broken person. Your head can get big. And you can get, you think more highly of yourself than you ought. But within time, oh, see, you learn to to differentiate between the gifts and the callings and the grace of God and your own brokenness, your own dependence on God. And when you're well acquainted with your own sinfulness and your own proneness to wander and your own sick ways and your own demons, right? You're grounded and God can just use you. And then you don't get conceited because you've got that tormented thing, those memories, the idea of who you are without the grace of God. But when you're young, you don't, you don't have time. You haven't had that experience yet. And so he says, lest this young guy, in all the gifts and the grace and the glory and all the hands going up, he gets blown up. He will, he will suffer the same fate as the one who got blown up with pride. Lucifer becomes the devil through pride. And so to avoid that, uh, God brings him low and teaches him, but he needs time. He needs time to build that humility. Uh, Sadly, if he doesn't, he gets puffed up with pride. He suffers the same uh, destiny as the devil who gets thrown down, and when God has to throw down a guy, a pastor, because he's too proud, who goes on that journey with him? The church, you see? So Paul says, make sure... He's got some years of experience and he's well grounded in humility. And last, a good reputation with unbelievers or outsiders. It's as if to say, this is the idea, that they go around and they sample, hey, uh, we don't want to know about your seminary teachers or your last pastor or we want to, we don't, we're not interested in the crusade over that you did. We want to hear from your landlord some co-workers, we want to hear from your school teachers, and we would like to contact your neighbors. And we're going to send them a form, and it should say, this is the point of this, it should say, good tenant, uh, the co-worker, hard worker, uh, teacher, good student, uh, next door neighbor, friendly, good neighbor. Why? Why? so as not to disgrace the ministry and fall into the stare of the devil, which is to prop up an ungodly, sinful, worldly man to preach the gospel and ridicule as outsiders look and see the disgrace and remain outsiders. That's the trap of the devil. Who, who would put an ungodly man in a, in a place that, where he should be holy and self-controlled and living above reproach? The same with the message. Here's what I'm trying to say. I ran into a guy at a bike shop. The Lord came up in our conversation. That happens, all right? And so I'm talking to him about the Lord. 
And he said, you're a pastor? He says, are you associated with pastor so-and-so on so-and-so road? And he described him. And I said, I've never heard of that name in my life. And he said, good. That guy, he owes me money. He owes me money. He's a terrible worker. He works part-time with us. And he told me what he did, right? And he said, oh, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. You see? A bad reputation from the outside. He's disgraced the message, which is exactly the intent of the devil, so that the outsider remains outside. And that's the devil's big deal. So he's happy about that. Now, um, let me put it this way to you as we wrap up now. Uh, None of us are perfect. That's not the call here. The call is to live above reproach, right? Um, None of us are perfect. Let me tell you about last night. I'm coming home from a wedding about 10 o'clock in the evening which is very rare. It was a close person. I don't go out on Saturday nights, but I was gone. And lights light up in my rearview mirror. So I pull over there in Roner Park. Flashlights, red lights everywhere. Woo! (laughs) And the light comes on in my face. You were going 80 miles an hour. My wife says, "Uh, he doesn't drive 80 miles an hour. He never drives 80 miles an hour. I don't. I, I told him, I said, uh, I don't drive 80. I, I really don't. But I believe you. But, but I, I, I really don't. He kind of smiled. And I, I just said, I'm, I'm the guy who irritates everybody on the freeway who drives too slow in the fast lane. That's me. That, and he goes, well, I'm pretty sure you're uh, at least 77, 78. And I said, oh. Now, I didn't say this. Oh, now we're down to 77. <laughs> so I said, hey, you know, I'm a pastor, and I'm speaking in the morning, and I was in a wedding, and maybe I just wasn't paying attention. And he looked at me like, now I'm going to write you two tickets. <laughs> no, one for speeding and one for being a pastor. <laughs> no. So he took all the things, and he went away. And I'm like, oh, Lord, mercy. And I yelled after him as he was going, mercy, mercy. So he comes back with a smile and says, you know what? You know, I'm not going to write you a ticket. I said, that's good, because tomorrow, I didn't say this in my mind. I'm thinking, tomorrow, I'm getting up to talk about the qualifications of a pastor. Being above reproach. And there I am. There are lights. I'm thinking of people from Roner Park driving past, seeing me on the side of the road with a police officer. You know. Then I get up. Let me talk to you about the qualifications of a pastor. God, God has his sense of humor. All right. So, yeah. I think really he pulled me over because I got a bike rack and it was obscuring the license plate. And I think that's because he brought that up as the major issue. So, but all that to say, let me close with this paragraph, all right? We're done. These qualifications are not meant to be legalistically pressed beyond their purpose, which is to describe the overall kind of man and the kind of life a Christian leader must have and must ever be pursuing. No pastor or Christian ever feels that he is all he ought to be 
and the church ought to be praying for him and the rest of the pastors and their families because as the pastoral team goes, so goes the church. Amen? Amen. Grace is something we love and we concentrate on, but it's no excuse to be careless and lazy with our character development. So, my friends, if you were thinking, oh man, I've got to work on that, whoops, whoa, that's an area. That's an area. Take it to heart. Make a goal. Pray about it. Pay attention to the next opportunity to instead of exhibit a a carnal trait or a worldly trait or a sinful trait, to see yourself growing in character. Because the more you grow in character, the more God can use you, the more credibility to your message, the more blessed your life. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word that you've exhorted us with these beautiful pictures. And Lord, we just got a lot to think about and pray about. We're encouraged, Lord, that you love us as we are. We're all works in progress, and we're so thankful for your grace and that it's up to your spirit, really, as we cooperate with him. And now bless us, Lord, as we reflect and worship in our closing song. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's stand together, closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.